Hi, everyone. I'm here today with Sarah Gustafson. Sarah is a family nurse practitioner. She provides clinical care, including mental health care at Student Health Services on the University of North Dakota campus. She has over 18 years of healthcare experience and is passionate about mental well-being and educating others on recognizing signs and symptoms of mental illness and looking at all available treatment options. Sarah is a past BioGirls mentor and a member of the Tears Advisory Board at All True Health System. Sarah has no further information to, dis to disclose. For the purpose of the podcast today, any information Sarah is presenting does not represent the University of North Dakota or All True Health System. I'm really excited to have you here today, Sarah. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Beth. I'm excited to be here as well. Great. Well, today we're going to talk a little bit about depression and anxiety, which can start early in childhood and are two of the most commonly diagnosed mental disorders in children in the United States. So I'm going to start us off with just a few stats. So um, according to the Center for Disease Control, among three to 17-year-olds, just some stats to throw at you, 9.4% of youth have diagnosed anxiety, which equals about 5.8 million youth in our country. 4.4% have diagnosed depression, which is approximately 2.7 million. Um, I think it's very important to note here that not all cases of anxiety and depression are diagnosed. Many more children and adolescents have either subclinical levels of anxiety or, and depression or are currently undiagnosed. Um, another interesting fact about anxiety and depression is that many times they occur together. So for example, about three in four youth with depression, three out of four youth with depression also have anxiety. And the last thing I wanna note before getting to talk a little bit more with Sarah here is that anxiety and depression have increased over time, especially in the last few years. Very good information, Beth. I think, you know, in doing a little research of my own, uh, looking at a current study that was published in August of 21 out in the JAMA medical um, articles, really kind of highlighted what you said, showing that, you know, kids go from having mental illness, approximately about 11 to 12 percent um, for rates of clinical, you know, clinical generalized anxiety and depressive symptoms. And a study published in August of 21 showed data from kind of that beginning of the pandemic, January 2020 to February of 2021. And it really showed that this has doubled. So now our adolescent depression and anxiety levels are looking more like 25% for anxiety and 20% for depression. So when we're looking at patterns, you're seeing already that we're seeing those rates double. And it would be interesting, you know, as we move on, even post-pandemic, what is that going to look like? And, and how do we, um, as really parents and community members, um, help in this mental health crisis? Yeah, wow, that's staggering information there. So based on all the statistics that Sarah and I have just mentioned, we, we can tell that depression and anxiety are pretty common in youth, and we're seeing those rates double um, during pandemic times. So I just going to ask you a question here, Sarah, um, if you can tell our listeners a little bit about some of the notable differences between depression and anxiety in terms maybe of risk factors and symptoms. Yes. Yeah, so I think like you highlighted too, depression, and anxiety often goes together and sometimes it's hard to distinguish what am I seeing? So 
in talking about depression, just some of the things you might see um, with depression might be behavior problems at school, um, changes in eating habits, something to watch in kids too. And specifically when we see a kid who might have some ADHD components in with depression would be binge eating. Um, also looking at habits of restriction. So looking at that early on, any changes that you're noting there, changes in sleep habits. I think this is a big one with our increase in technology use. Our kiddos go into bed with the phone or are we putting the phone on the counter at night? And I think that's a huge thing when we're talking about healthy sleep patterns. So that's that's a big one, changes in sleep habits. Or is a kid just not wanting to get out of bed? Mm-hmm. Um, feelings of hopelessness and worthlessness, um, lack of interest in activities. So if a kid normally is active with friends in extracurriculars and really pulling back, that's a big red flag. So I would say that's really where a conversation has to take place as well. And just overall fatigue, just always tired and irritable. We know that, you know, kids can be irritable if they're not getting that healthy sleep. And then as they move into those adolescent years, um, lots of things happening with, with um, hormonal changes, and that can also impact some of this stuff. Anxiety signs, I would say a lot of this, again, can be a lot of different categories, but just with anxiety, you may see a kid that just struggles with separating from mom and dad. So maybe going to school and that separation anxiety in itself, that that could be something you're seeing. Um, a kid that might have extreme fear of just a certain situation or thing could be a, could be a phobia of a pet, could be um, not wanting to go to the doctor, the dentist, or even just school. Being afraid of school would be another one or just places where there's a lot of people. So that social anxiety factor, um, maybe a kiddo that's not hanging out with friends as much social anxiety could be an underlying factor. Um, being worried about the future, bad things happening. So just that constant worry or fear is really what anxiety is. So if you're noticing your, your child or um, adolescent, they're just constantly asking those questions, worried about what the next plan is, um, just generally worried about anybody or anything, that, that's something that you want to be in tune to. Um, repeated episodes of physical symptoms, um, sometimes that abdominal pain you'll see in, in kids and, and just the reasons that they maybe wouldn't want to go somewhere. You'll see that maybe trouble breathing, feeling dizzy, shaky. Um, Any of those would be signs of anxiety. When I also think about these factors in kids and looking at who are those kids that could be more at risk and you're really looking at what are those adverse childhood events. So is there stuff that has happened because PTSD is a component of anxiety as well. And I think about with the pandemic, does that classify a lot of our people, right? There was a lot of change that happened there. Um, and so now I think we're, we're seeing some of that. I also think we're talking more about these, um, factors and mental well-being. So was this always a thing and a problem? And now we're just talking more about it and seeing it. Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. And, you know, it, as you were going through the symptoms, especially for anxiety, I was thinking more and more about the pandemic and the effects that it has on our children and thinking about the the numbers doubling well it makes sense you know like there is a lot of fear of social interaction sometimes and going out leaving the house so that kind of brings me nicely smoothly into my next question which has to do with social relationships and isolation so 
How do social relationships and social isolation play a role in youth mental health, especially when we think about anxiety and depression? Yeah, I think that, uh, and, and we know this, social isolation is a real big concern. And again, coming out of the pandemic, we know you're seeing this everywhere when you're reading, you're seeing it on social media. Loneliness is, is an epidemic and that's real. And how, what are we going to do about that? I, I think we all have a lot of work to do to really help with this piece. You know, those social skills, they really start building when kids are young and often mom and dad are those facilitators of this and other, other role models in their life and just teaching and modeling those positive social skills is going to be crucial. Mm -hmm. I, I think about kids when they're young, mom and dad are setting up a lot of those play dates and helping coordinate those social activities, watching how their kids socializes and maybe helping them with reading social cues. And you can kind of monitor that. And I think when we had the pandemic, we weren't getting together, right? We know that. The other thing that's happened is we have technology coming in earlier to our kids' hands. And so we're not maybe actively socializing in person with people. Now we're socializing through technology. And that's where the control is lost, right? We don't know what our kids are saying. They're in apps that can delete what they say. We don't maybe know who their friends even are. So parenting probably has never been more tough than it is right now with managing that. So little things that can help with that would be, again, knowing those social circles that your kid is, is in keeping our kids active. So really, what are those extracurriculars that they like? What do they enjoy doing? And really helping foster those things away from technology again. Um, but we know we're not going to get away from it completely. So having some parameters there, and there's so many settings that you can set up for safety nets within that phone. I think with kids, the hardest piece is as they move through all of those adolescent years, if they haven't found those social groups, they can really, really isolate. And that, that can be very concerning because being socially connected gives you that feeling of belonging. And so what I see in my practice taking care of kids and kids at the college level is if we haven't developed these skills, they come to college and now it's a real struggle because now I'm meeting all new people that I've never seen before. Mm -hmm. So as parents, again, it's, it's these basic things, Beth. And I think it's, you know, looking an adult in the eye and saying, hello, it's teaching kids kind of this basic, we feel like it should be common sense, but for them, it's, it's different. And some of them, there's underlying anxiety to go back out into the world again, after we were told we need to stay home, we need to distance from people. Right. Right. Um, I'm just going to switch gears a little bit here and um, talk about another another statistics that's, that's a little bit disappointing as well. Um, according to the CDC, there are a lot of children who have diagnosed depression and anxiety that aren't receiving treatment for it. So um, I've, I found out that, you know, maybe eight in 10 children with depression are receiving treatment and only about six in 10 with anxiety are receiving treatment. So that's obviously we'd like that number to be higher. We want to see like a hundred percent of, um, youth who have mental illness or mental health, um, issues. We want them to get treatment. So that kind of leads me to my next question for you, Sarah, which is what are some treatment options available for depression and anxiety? 
And that's a great question. I think one of the barriers is, is access, right? So we have seen this realm of telemedicine options really open up for people. So the more we can just create access, I think is huge. But I think one piece to the treatment option is recognizing Mm -hmm. sometimes it's okay to have a little bit of anxiety. We can normalize some of these feelings that I might be nervous in this situation. I might get a little nervous when I go to school. So how do we teach people to kind of support and recognize when a kid is feeling like that? So treatment options, it's really, I think about it like a piece of pie. So one piece of that pie um, is medications. So seeing those pediatric providers, um, a lot of family medicine providers as well can can prescribe medications. And I think that 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 can be a sliver of the pie when needed for kids. I think looking at that counseling option is is just huge in cognitive behavioral therapy. And depending on what type of problems that that kid is having, will help create, you know, which type of counseling do we need? I know you've had some other counselors on here as well that have probably spoken on that. So um, again, I think of it about a piece of pie being, you know, what are these pharmacologic treatments, meaning my medication, but then what are all these non-pharmacologic things that we can do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have a, a, a great follow-up question that comes after that. But before I ask that, I was wondering, you know, as a parent, and, and I've talked to other parents that have this concern about um, recognizing, like, let's say, for example, with anxiety, what is the cutoff between a normal level of anxiety? Like, you know, I'm, I'm nervous on my first day of school, like I'm, I'm nervous to go to, you know, this party where there are going to be lots of people versus, you know, something that's more diagnosable. Yes. And I think looking at how is it impacting their daily living? Mm-hmm. Your, is your kid able to, um, again, have some underlying anxiety, but can they go into their social groups? Can they go to school? Are they eating? Are they sleeping? And looking at how are they functioning day to day? If you're battling day to day with your child or they're uncontrollably crying, they're not getting out of bed. It's a battle every day. That's when I think that you, you go over that line of, I might not be able to manage this myself right in my house. I'm probably going to need to get some additional help. And I do think about counseling being that first step. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, um, how, I I guess I, you can think about it in, in terms of how much disruption is it causing? Like, are they nervous on their first day of school, but you drop them off and, you know, they see their friend and then they go to school and they're fine versus like, they're so nervous, they can't get out of bed or, um, you know, it's a recurring theme that happens every day. So I guess the, you know, the intensity level, and like you said, the, just, does it change your daily lifestyle? I think those are important points. Yes, for sure. And, and sometimes it's hard. It's hard for us to always know, is this normal or not? Right. And that's when I think when you're feeling like that and you might be riding the fence as a, as a parent, do I, do I take this further? Do I ask for help? Ask. And you know, a great time to do that is when you're bringing your kids in for their well child visits, Yep. when you're going in for a physical and really you don't have to wait for that. Call up your, call up the professionals and just say, you know, can I, can I visit about this? But I think also look at there's so many different resources as well. So, um, and I think we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. Just what are those other things I can do in my household to help my my kids? 
Yeah, Sarah, you bring up a really good point where it's just, you just ask, you seek help. And um, a little bit ago, we had Dr. Baki on, on podcast with us, and she's a pediatrician. And she said that a vast majority of what she does in her practice is actually mental health related. And we may, may not know that because she's a you know, a pediatrician, but it's important that you know that you can ask your pediatrician that they they do assess mental well-being. And there are a lot of counseling options out there and resources even online. I mean, you can't trust everything that you read online, but you know, it's it's a starting point if you if you turn to the medical journals or um, there are places that you can seek additional information, I feel like that can at least help you recognize when you might need to take that next step. So um, moving back to Sarah, you were talking about earlier and you had set me up perfectly for a transition between pharmacological and non-pharmacological discussion here. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about some non-pharmacological options for preventing depression and anxiety. So some of the things I know you are really good at is um, tying in the mind-body options and um, maybe incorporating nutrition, you already mentioned sleep, uh, mindfulness and things like that. Yes. I, when I see patients, we do, we talk about treatment options and it's, it's a big, it's a big, again, it's that high concept of what, what is going to be the best first step. So many times I, I see, um, patients in the practice that maybe they've done some counseling already, and that isn't maybe fully helping them. It's helping them to a point to do a lot of skill building. Um, and again, prescriptions are always an option, but I think there's a lot of factors that we can do that really can help enhance that mental well-being. And Beth kind of to reiterate again, it's that sleep is one of them. Mm-hmm making sure again, like I said, that kids are getting the appropriate amount of sleep. I think I looked up some sleep stats last night and I saw, you know, kids that age, I think it was seven to 18 or 24, even they need at least eight to 10 hours of sleep. Mm. Well, if kids aren't getting that, what happens? They can get irritable, right? They can feel then more, a little bit more down. Depression can set in right? And so sleep is just huge. And, and really a big factor with sleep is really shutting down screens at least 60 minutes prior to bedtime to really let your body use that natural melatonin to help you relax and, and just really go to sleep. So um, yeah, sleeping, one of those nutrition would be the other one. Um, we live in a fast paced world. I think moms and dads are busy. They're working full time. They're trying to manage all this and, and that creates that stress component and a component of, are we sitting down to eat a meal every night? And realistically, probably not. And so how do you get your kids involved with maybe some meal planning? What are you guys' favorite foods? What can we make to this week that you really want? And just involving them and showing them what does nutritious food look like and balancing that because otherwise it is, it's quick and easy to, you know, drive through the drive-through all the time. And we know that we, we've all been there. <laughs> Um, and then, you know, the other thing I talk about is exercise and just moving. And I think we all just, we all sit uh, probably more than we have. Um, and kids often can be pretty active when they're in school, they're moving from class to class, but again, when they had to kind of socially isolate or mask and do those things, they weren't moving as much. And so even during a day in school, how much are they really moving? I don't know that answer, but I know that when they come home in the evening, 
it's good for them to get outside. And our weather's a, a problem with that. That's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a hard thing. Um, but really, they say kids should have 60 minutes of activity. And I think that's where your kids that aren't involved maybe with an extracurricular structured athletic sport, how are they getting in that movement? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's really crucial. Um, the other thing I talk about is mindfulness and in teaching your kids when I'm feeling really anxious or I'm feeling right. Like it might be to go to school. It might be to take a test. It might be to go to a social event. How do I do maybe some deep breathing to just try to calm my body down? Mm -hmm. And that's really teaching kids how to pay attention to what those signs might be. Mm -hmm. And, and also just positive self-talk kids are hard on themselves. And so teaching them, you know, when I go into a situation and I'm nervous, how do I switch my mindset? And I think about it um, for a test, or I'm going to perform in a play, I'm going to perform in a sport. And am I thinking, geez, I don't think I can do this. Or am I switching my brain and saying, you know what, I can do this. I got this. I'm smart. And I think those messages come from home too. So it just makes parents, I think, just kind of take a step back and teaching kids that positive self-talk. We can all benefit benefit from that, not just um, kids. I think adults as well. For sure. Um, And then I'd say my last one that I talk about is that social interaction, which we already hit on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I challenge um, patients when I see them, don't just um, snap or text people. I want you to talk to people daily, two people a day. Mm -hmm. Um, I want you to call them on the phone or I want you to meet in person with somebody per day. Mm -hmm. Easy for kids that go to school. They're seeing everybody. But let's talk about on the weekends. Do they have any friends they're hanging out with? Do they have family they're interacting with? Or are they just sitting in a room by themselves? What does that look like? So I, I think those are just kind of those five areas that mm-hmm. um, really can be looked at in a non-pharmacologic way for treatment of, of mental illness. And I think when you can have those pillars of health intact, you really can perform at a higher level of mental well-being. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. And I like that. I like the you nicely laid out five different, different components of it. Can I ask you if you have, um, like a favorite mindfulness activity or, um, method that you recommend or that you, um, you know, that kids or teens enjoy? You know, I, I don't have one in particular. I think the thing that I do a lot, Beth, and I know it's so simple. I do teach, um, kids with test anxiety. It's a common thing I see. Mm-hmm. I teach them how to do very slow breathing mm-hmm. and really take that deep breath in. Okay. And you're going to do that about four times. Okay. So before you're walking into an exam and, and doing that activity, there is a lot of really cool uh, mindfulness. Um, they're like little coloring books or journals that you can get for kids that are wipeable. Mm-hmm. And I know we have one of those in our home and that is a really nice little activity. Those are found like within book orders or on Scholastica. Um, I don't, yeah, that's a tough one. I don't have anything other than like direct that I do within practice, but there's again, so much out there. I think kids too, like yoga, right? That's a form of it. So I know there is YouTube videos and I think Amazon has some yoga that we've, I know our daughter's done before and really liked. So yeah, yeah. Those are great. <laughs> you said you don't, you don't have any, but then you just listed three. So <laughs> thank and I'm you. like, I don't have anything maybe like exact on my mind, but yeah, just, those are great I think we, I think sometimes we complicate it by 
thinking it has to be something huge when it's small, simple things. Just breathing, you know, like the, the concentration and the, the body movement that's involved Mm -hmm. in yoga is, is really good. And coloring, like, you know, people don't think about the therapeutic effects of coloring, but it is very mindful. And, you know, we have a lot of coloring books, like, um, and colored pencils and things like that in our home too. And it is very, it is very mindful. So those were three great examples that, um, I hope, uh, people will enjoy. So, um, we're pretty much out of time, but I just, I wanted to say, Sarah, thank you so much for this great conversation. You gave us lots of things to think about and some strategies to use. Um, do you have any final suggestions or maybe some, uh, some take-home messages for our listeners? Yeah, I think just really the biggest thing with all of this is it's going to take everybody to help with the mental health crisis that we are in. And so I think it starts in the home and how do we team up with teachers and communities to help really foster and model what those pillars of mental well-being are. We're not going to be perfect all the time, but how do we start and how do we pick one each day and say, today we're going to really focus on nutrition. And, And then slowly it will ripple into something greater. And again, it, it, it's going to take everybody to help with this. Takes a village, right? (laughs) Yes. Uh, That's a, that's a great message to end on. So again, Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. It was, it was great to have this conversation with you. Thank you, Beth.